You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey people, how are you doing? Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, episode 162, recorded as always. Well, I say always, the last two weeks we've been recording on a Wednesday, but 98.52% of the time we are um, on a Tuesday. So if you do want, if you listen to the podcast and you want to join us live and you want to ask the guests questions directly and hang out with the people in our live lounge, then it's generally a Tuesday and next week will be a Tuesday. But if you're not sure when it, when it is, you want to be sure, then just follow us, follow the UK underscore STA on your preferred social media app. And that's where you can find details of who our guests are. Anyway, people are flocking into the lounge. The live lounge is actually, a, I'm actually about four minutes late. Sorry about that. We had some technical difficulties. I'm just going to say a quick hi to people who are here. Glenn Murphy says, hello, everybody. If you do join us live, podcast listeners, then you get a chance to ask your question. It comes up on the screen. So it's a nice way of sharing your photo. And in the case of Glenn, a very chiseled, actor draw, draw there so you can share whatever you like nikki mansfield here as well you can share your logo you can share it's a great way of networking nikki mansfield said Shh, don't tell anyone i'm here i'm supposed to be on holiday nikki mansfield can't join us tonight she's on holiday so good luck to you nikki wherever you are um fine fantastic other people are coming now so the sports therapy association podcast and before we join um or before i bring up my guest for tonight um a big thanks to last episode's guest episode 161 who was mr keith burnett um, a solid favorite on the sta podcast uh, keith is a lecturer in sports and exercise therapy he's an ex-semi-professional rugby union prop um, and currently studying a specialist doctorate in neck injury management in rugby players and keith gave us an hour in episode 161 talking about how he's identified the need for improvements in both player and therapist education with regards to neck injuries in rugby and he talked about the great work, the truly great work he's doing to help quality information reach local club level um, as opposed to just the elites. And it's it's a beautiful episode. He's a beautiful person. Um, he really is trying to make sure that it's not just the elites that get the quality information. It's down on every single level because injuries are injuries. OK, if anything, potentially there's more danger lower down where skill levels are low and people are less fit and so on and so on. So it's a great episode. As always, you can check it out um, on all popular podcast apps, including Spotify. If you want to watch the video and there is a little bit of um, descriptions and screenshots, um, then you can go along to YouTube. Or you can also watch uh, the video, which I embed as always at the sta.co.uk, which is the Sports Therapy Association website. Okay, right. So we've had two episodes so far this month on rugby. And some of you will be pleased to know the non-rugby affiliates that we are shifting sport tonight is going to be all about tennis. And my guest with not just but including 24 years of Wimbledon tennis championships under his belt, who better to talk to? Um, about tennis and also about his very long, illustrious career, including a couple of books he's written and lecturing at various universities, a whole load of stuff. So I'm very excited uh, to bring up Steve Bedford. As always, people in the live lounge, if you've got any questions, I've told Steve if he sees a good question or a bad question, then he just he's going to tell me and he's going to um, I'm going to bring that question up onto the screen in case I don't notice it. So I think that's about it. So without further ado, I shall now bring up Steve Bedford. <laughs> You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hi, 
Matt. Um, thanks for inviting me for this podcast. My pleasure. I'm sorry about the technical difficulties at the beginning, uh, but we got here. Um, so thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. Great to see you. Um, I know for some people, they'll be um, pleased to to move into tennis. We've had a couple of episodes now on rugby, which was great. But I've already had, you know, people are funny on there. I've already had emails saying, oh, why is the STA now just about rugby? Is it? We did two episodes on rugby, but the emails have come in suggesting that we're just obsessed with rugby now. Not the case at all. But thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to you. I've got to put my hand up now and say I've, I don't think I've ever played tennis. I definitely don't treat tennis players, maybe one or two. So I'm really looking forward to educating myself as well. Um, so where are you? What part of the country? And I've forgotten that. Where are you? Just so our listeners well, know. I'm sort of uh, based in Bristol, where I live. Okay. Uh, currently at my parents' house in Peterborough, which is where I grew up. Okay. And work-wise, I'm between London and Bristol. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Quite but you spent a long, lot of time in Wimbledon out of those, out of those, <laughs> you spent kind of, yeah, a, a lot few of months. Life. The All England Club, yeah. Excellent. And not just that, as we'll get into later on, but um, I'm excited actually, because looking at your history, I mean, mm. people listen to podcasts, they can't see you, but you definitely don't look like you, you started back in 95. Um, you explained to me it's a garden town, but looking very healthy. Is yeah, that testimony to your lifestyle and kind of working in the fitness industry or is it just genetics? Well, yeah, I, mean, I also do a lot of personal training, strength and conditioning. So I always think if you're asking other people to do things, you should at least be able to do it yourself. So okay. I get a bit old as I get older, it's a bit harder, but I'm still uh, hanging in there. I'll so tell you about it. Yeah, I know all about that. But anyway, we're going to go back. We're going to travel back a little bit because I think it'll be inspirational for a few of our listeners, quite a few of our listeners, back to 95, if that's okay, which, believe it or not, was, what, um, 28 years ago? Two years ago. That was before quite a lot of our listeners were even born. So there we go. We're going back there, people, in the olden days, as my two kids would say, because that's when you first qualified in Swedish massage, which a lot of our listeners are. They've, they've recently qualified. And and. I want to hear that journey from there back in 95 to where you are today with books under your belt, edu- uh, lecturing at universities. Back in 95, what is it that made you want to get into Swedish massage? Did you have any idea back then you were going to kind of hang out with Roger Federer one day? Yeah, no, I I didn't know. I didn't know how it was going to pan out. I had no idea at all. I was just waiting for, um, I had a lot of back pain growing up, um, especially through my later teens and early 20s. And I was involved in Taekwondo quite a lot. And I was waiting for one of my uh, classes to start. And I'd seen various people, chiropractors, osteopaths, I'd injections in my spine, traction, I'd had everything. And um, just as I was waiting for a class to start, there was a guy at the gym who did sports massage. And he just said to me, look, you've let everybody else have a go. Why don't you let me have a go and see if I can help you? And I saw him and it made such a difference. He, I said, look, you've got to tell me where you, where do you learn how to do this? Um, and he gave me the details of a few courses. Um, the sports massage one wasn't starting until later on. So I did the Swedish massage first just because I was just dying to get started. So I did that course first. And then the following year, I went to a college and did sports massage. And it kind of all just started from there. And then I just got more and more hungrier for courses, wanted to learn as much as I could. Interesting. So like quite a few of our guests, you know, your desire to get into it came from issues yourself with your back. And we have a lot of people. Did you did you find were you receiving treatment at the time? Did you find that it was helping you then? Is that what made you want to go into it? 
Yeah, as soon as he gave me um, a treatment and it made such a difference that first one, I booked in with him again and I had some regular treatments with him. And the difference it made compared to all of the other treatments I had, then that's where I just thought you know, I had sort of some, some kind of magic at the time because nobody had actually they'd cracked me about and I'd had traction and injections, but nobody had actually put their kind of hands on me and done any physical work and I think that was the key that was the big difference and so I was just kind of yeah I just couldn't wait to get started then because I thought if it if it's helped me that much then I'm sure it can help a lot of other people so I just yeah started studying as much as I could. That's really interesting it's lovely to hear because there is obviously so much debate I mean, we live in that bubble, but there's debate about how effective is massage. Does massage actually make a difference in the research? Is, research shows it can help with anxiety and depression, but is it doing anything? Blah, blah, blah. But a lot of therapists get worried when they hear that, particularly on social media. But we forget that evidence-informed or evidence-based practice is not just going by the research. It's going by what the patient wants and what the patient feels as well. And in your case, you're a classic example of somebody who had tried other stuff. And this hands-on was helping you you know so it's 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 great to hear and interesting um we've got some just before you continue i've got one person in the live lounge saying that the sink is out and i've got one person saying it's okay so based on an n equals two and a 50 percent success rate i'm going to go with that's okay i'm going to think that uh that glenn statistically it's you i'm sorry if 50 percent of the people are fine if anyone else could just mention then let me know um anyway so yeah you went on to study loads of other stuff um you went on to do there was some interesting stuff as well it seems like you were the eternal student you included neurolinguistic programming clinical hypnosis cardiac rehabilitation personal training pilates you went through it all didn't you was this again what what led you how did you choose or were you just kind of one of these i've got to do everything i i think it, i was i was always searching for like gaps in my knowledge i thought what do i not know enough about mm-hmm and, you know, after doing the sports therapy course and the sports injury course, I, you know, I was working in a gym, doing personal training, doing my massage. And then I thought, well, what if people have got medical conditions? You know, what do I do then? So then I joined, I saw an advert in the newspaper for the London Ambulance Service. So I joined the London Ambulance Service. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> Just uh, did the course, qualified. And it was very, it, I'd already done two Wimbledons then probably the turning point of which way I was going to go, whether it was ambulance service or back into the fitness and therapy. And I decided the therapy. So it was just like a short study break, really. And then from there, like you say, cardiac rehab. And then because I wanted to know more about that. And yeah, it just the whole of the therapy always worked alongside me doing other things you know, doing the fitness, doing rehabilitation, both medical and sports injury. So I always run the things parallel. I've always been a bit frightened about putting my eggs in one basket. So very interesting. And did the tennis come about because of your involvement? Were you a keen tennis player and that's how you got into working in tennis or? I hit a ball over a net. I've got (laughs) so disappointed. Yeah. But honest, I like that. So how how did you get into tennis? Tennis, again, it was another one of these things. I was doing, it was the FA Diploma in Injury, which was a two-year sports injury course. And in between, sort of halfway through that, I was living quite near Queen's Club, ironically, where I'm based now. Mm -hmm. 
and um, I contacted a physio there and asked if I could get some work experience. He said no a few times. I just kept on badgering him until he said yes. And then I spent the next four months doing two afternoons a week with him. And he was, you know, he's long since retired now. He was quite an old school physio. He was lots of electrotherapy, um, not much rehab or exercise or hands-on massage. So I started doing some of that for him. And then after four months, I said, it's been great. Thank you very much. But I'm done now. You know, I need to kind of earn some money. Um, and a couple of weeks later, he called me up and said, look, I, I didn't mention when you were working with me but I'm the head physio at Wimbledon. He said, are you interested in coming to do some time this year? And that was 1999. And they hope now to get rid of me since. <laughs> Evidently. That's really interesting. I wonder whether time, I mean, because we talk about in this show, historically, the kind of a little bit of breakdown in communication between physios, particularly anybody with massage in their title. Um, it's getting better maybe in some circles, but it's interesting to hear that a physio was keen to get you involved. Do you think, I mean, was there any judging back then according to what your title was or was it simply down to character and just faith in you as a person? Yeah, I think when people have seen you work, it makes a bit of a difference. You know, if, if they're just looking at a CV that maybe says massage on it or sports therapy, I think as they get to know you as a character and see you work, then I think that puts a different slant on things. Um, but I heard of somebody I worked with at the time who'd been, he actually did 37 Wimbledons. He started back in the 80s and he told me a story about two guys who'd been there years and they used to wear these big, long white coats and they would, one of them would have a roll up in his mouth. Yeah, dropping on players' backs as he was rubbing the lotion in. Oh, classic. So, but I think it's been around, you know, it, the massage in professional tennis has been around since at least the sort of late 70s, early 80s. Um, so it's been around for a while, but obviously the standard and maybe those guys weren't even qualified at the time. Yeah, but yeah. They had people I knew they wanted and I knew the players wanted massage. So when I came in, the physios who were there were doing a bit of massage, but then I was probably one of the first people they brought in purely in that role. Very so interesting. So it yeah. kind of, when it really kicked on, because then they asked me if I knew other people. So the over the next two years, I brought in two more people. So um, other therapists that I knew. So. So uh, just yeah. to give us an idea, because let's go from, so the year you mentioned where you got the guy with the rolly and the ash dropping on the player's back. Brilliant to this year when you were there what was the setup this year in terms of massage provision at Wimbledon um it starts off it's, it's a very sort of uh, people think Wimbledon is just two weeks mm -hmm. but it's three weeks in effect because there's a week before where the players can come and practice so I actually do the tournament at Queen's Club the Cinch Championships mm -hmm. I think that final is on the Sunday and then Monday I start at Wimbledon and there's already two physios there on the weekend before. So gradually the team kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go through. And then towards the end, it starts to then tail down. Although now we have the under 14s and the junior Wimbledon, we have the wheelchair athletes mm -hmm. and we have for the ex players. So it doesn't, it used to kind of go up and then gradually go down, but now the downward slide is not 
quite as a steep curve down just because of the other players that we look after. So the team on the men's, because WTA and the ATP are two different federations. So even though we're one team, it's majority of female therapists work with the females and the majority is male, although we do have females working with us. So it's still divided a little bit, which that the reason for that is basically because we're, we're just off the locker rooms. So you actually have to enter into the changing rooms to get into the treatment room. Mm-hmm. Why there's been a bit of a division of the sexes so far. Although, like I said, we we had two females working with us this year on the male side. A little bit harder for us because the way the men would have to go through the sort of changing area to get into the treatment room, which is why it hasn't kind of quite worked the other way gotcha big team all together on the men's and women's side there's roughly there's about 38 of us wow gosh that's physios podiatry and massage that's incredible but it does go down some people just do a few days to a week and and these 38 are working with all level athletes yeah so that would be anybody who comes along so, for example, on the men's side, you've got about 250 players mm-hmm. who actually, because you've got the doubles as well, singles, doubles. And and kind of the more elites, like the, the kind of the top people, do they bring their own therapists with them? Have they got their own practitioners or do you find them entering as well? Yeah, more and more over the years since I started, um, more and more, since prize money has gone up, more mm. players bring in their own. Although sometimes their own guy or girl might be with them on the um, actual tournament but not the practice week or if they um, do the tournament before like at the cinch championships the their therapist might not arrive for that so I mean I've looked after 11 different Wimbledon winners over my time there so yeah on, drop some names give us some names this is where we need you to I like Djokovic from now the players I mean all of the people that may be the older viewers would remember like the Beckers, McEnroe and Lender. Brilliant. All of those beyond Borg, all of those sort of guys, right? The, the current players. Gary Benson just come in, so he's just raised the average age of the listener in the live lounge now considerably. So you you just keep firing those names. <laughs> now that's that's incredible. So first of all, is it difficult? So if we've got people who are thinking, Oh, I'd love to work in Wimbledon, is it tricky to get the gig? Or what would you recommend to people if they do? like the idea of this yeah i mean it's like with most of these sort of jobs in elite sports some of it is about timing some of it is about who you know um occasionally adverts go out and i think we had our biggest kind of recruitment over the covid period because we had to stay with the players in a bubble in the hotel which meant we had some people at the all england club and some people in the hotel so we um recruited three new therapists during that time which was the biggest in one go because generally it's then when people leave um, unless they bring in something new I mean the way the extra two therapists we managed to keep hold of um, which was largely because um, now we have the under 14s and the junior Wimbledon is getting bigger all the time the wheelchair drawer is getting bigger so we were able to still give those guys some work even though initially we only needed them for you know the COVID reason Mm-hmm. so for the majority of time now you know you're looking at if people leave or our hours have actually got longer so we are looking at kind of more of a shift pattern 
because now we have to start um, 8.30 in the morning where it used to be 9.30, 10 o'clock. And um, because of the lights on court one and centre, rather than finishing kind of when it got dark, now they put the lights on and we can be there till, well, the latest this year was 20 past 12 at night. So, wow. um, yeah. This is great. Know. This is really fascinating. I mean, for me and I hope for listeners as well, I've only ever, the event, the only events I've worked, and I've worked at rugby a few seasons and I've actually, I've worked at football. Okay, I've worked at rugby, football and running, but I've never worked at tennis, that's what I'm trying to say. So I'm really excited to hear about how the day pans out. Like in a marathon, for example, you know that once you've got the first runners off and that, you're not really going to see anybody for kind of like two hours, 20 minutes or something, depending on what marathon you're at. But um, how does a day pan out? For example, Nikki Mansfield here has coincided with a sort of thing that was on my mind. Nikki Mansfield says, do you step into a shared infrastructure of booking system, intake consents, soap notes, etc., or are you responsible for keeping your own records from treatment to treatment? There's a good start. How does that work out? Yeah, we um, there used to be a more of a booking system where players would come in and just sign up on a board. I mean, up until I'd say seven or eight years ago, we would have probably 10 players waiting and we would work. It used to get busy around 3.30 until about 9, 9.30. Mm-hmm. And you pretty much be head down and you would do a solid sort of six hours, seven hours without stopping. Now, obviously, there are more of us. We have a bigger treatment room, so there are more plinths. So it's it's got a lot better. Plus, some of the guys now come with their own therapist. Mm-hmm. So, workload has gone down it used to be tough back then it used to it used to be really tough sometimes you would just go to the toilet just so you could kind of have a break you know you you, you weren't drinking you go to the toilet but you used to go there just to kind of have 30 seconds yourself just it used to be pretty intense but it's far better now now you know the, you have a lot of gaps in between treatments so are but, you when you see people coming to you have they already done the consent and kind of like medical questionnaire with somebody else and you just they're straight down or do you have to ask them those questions and check that you're not gonna you know that they're okay to continue yeah i mean some some of it by assumption because if you're there playing in a tournament then health wise then you know you know they're okay Mm -hmm. and we also have like a team of physiotherapists there and plus the we have um i think for wimbledon we have five um atp physios who travel on the whole tour mm-hmm. so those guys will generally see a lot of the injuries gotcha. our local physios will see the injuries so for massage wise we do all of our note taking then at the end okay. um a lot of the players you know you've seen and spoke to prior um prior to like that day that tournament that match you know we're in kind of a constant communication with them really because we probably i mean i'm not sure what the actual number is but we don't see everybody some players never come in for any treatment unless Mm. they're in it's the same people who tend to come in all the time Mm. i guess they're the people it works for they feel it works for that's fair enough i'm interested also in because again because of my because i'm only working with runners like pre-event and post-event pretty much well post-event maybe you're doing some shoulders and arms and neck they've got a bit longer but pre-event it's all about the legs and the hips and the glutes sort of stuff but i guess with tennis players as far as i remember from tennis there's quite a lot of upper body involvement as well so you've got quite a big job if someone comes in and says yeah get me ready how do you manage yeah. to work with the time with that yeah beforehand when players who are about to go on court always get priority 
Um, and then, yeah, it's like shoulders, elbows, low backs, as well as a sort of lower body. You know, it could be hamstring, calf, anything. Mm. So, yeah, we, we give them a little bit of time before they go out. Some players will just come in and say, can you loosen me up? Yeah. And they lay down and then we'll do some mobilising with them, some dynamic stretching, whatever they need, really. They're, mm-hmm. they're very good at, at telling you what they want. And when you work with them a lot, you kind of know what they mean. If they just say, can you loosen me up? You know, you have a pretty good idea. So it could be massage-based. It could be more mobility, dynamic stretching. Okay. Very interesting. And and you say it kind of starts at three o'clock in the afternoon. So if you're not working, then what, what do you – do you get to go and watch some of it as well? Is it kind of a nice event as well for people? I presume a lot of people are there are very excited by it and they want to watch a bit of it. Is that something you can do or is that like, no, you're not here to watch? No, I mean, you, you can, but when it's towards more the end of the tournament, um, you can't go too far away. And it's not – we're not just sitting around doing nothing. There are still people coming in. It's right. just, all busy at the same time mm-hmm. so we you know we get to have you know two or three of us can go for lunch together rather than just as it used to be when we used to have to go on our own yeah, you know, yeah. go for a coffee and it's, it's quite relaxed until and we know once those first matches come off court so you get the first ones on and then you know you've got a little bit of a breather until the next matches go on court mm-hmm. and pay is everybody paid or is some of it voluntary or is it kind of but it's all paid by the all england club that's nice to hear because that's not always the case. Sometimes it's like a bucket at the end for a lot of events. So, and paid kind of would people be surprised to hear? I mean, you don't have to say it might not be appropriate, but no. so it's. It, I mean, as a day rate, it's good, but then it depends how many hours you're doing on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, now our days have extended a lot, and we are taking it in turns between us, just organising who comes in early, who who leaves early. So that means that you know our day is not too long. But, you know, a normal day will be 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, for a day rate, it's good. But on an hourly rate, perhaps not as good. And I guess it's an amazing experience and great for someone's CV if they can get that down there and, and experience different players and different needs. And that emergency, that state of continual having to be there and help people. Yeah. But also, you know, when you're working with a team of people, I mean, I've had this in football as well. When you're working with a team of people, is you you have to get on and you know at Wimbledon we will really do get on and you know we'll go for a drink together in the evening when we finish if it's a reasonable if we've got two or three of us have an early finish then we'll be straight down the pub afterwards you know we even though we spent all day together so you know we'll get on really well and we do a little quite a lot of sort of CPD stuff so we'll all be showing each other you know dips from bits and pieces from there's an osteopath and dietaries and physios we'll all you know if we have spare time we'll all be if we're not doing a bit of treatment on each other then we'll somebody will be talking about something we'll start listening in so it's, it's good atmosphere yeah that sounds amazing um I mean, keep questions coming, people, if you're interested about the actual the day, the event and Wimbledon and all that, because I'm sure, especially for those of you who are into tennis and work with tennis playing clients, then there's a load of questions you guys are going to have. But I'm interested in the, the master's degree you did in sports performance. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did that involve? What, what were the kind of different modules and on that particular master's? Yeah, that was another one of these things where I, because I started doing the sports therapy, pre-sports therapy degrees, um, I, cause I think they started in around 2001, if I'm correct. And I uh, qualified with mine in 99. So I was always, um, I thought I kind of missed out on that whole university thing a bit. 
but I carried on and because I was I got to work at Arsenal and Wimbledon without having a degree it kind of I went through waves of being bothered and less so as the years went on courses and then a friend of mine actually who, who used to work at Wimbledon we'd both been talking about it for years he did the same courses I had and you know we were saying about university and going and I, and I asked around and when I told them you know I approached the university and told them what I'd done they said to me about you should just go straight into an MSc. So, um, so I did that, and um, it was sports performance, and it was strength and conditioning, performance analysis, exercise testing, and prescription. Um, God, it's been ten years now. I can't remember. <sighs> um, it, it, it was, I think what that did, it wasn't everything that I learned that I think it gave me. Although obviously that. Was a benefit. It was it was research, getting into the research, and the interest in research. That's what it really did for me. Is after that point, I, I kind of understood research, and I, I kind of really got a taste for it. Wanted to do research, wanted to read it, wanted to learn more that way. So um, I think that was a big thing that it gave me. Excellent. I guess that sparked on for you to eventually to write. A couple of books which we'll talk about in a second and before we do that i don't want to miss out i'm not sure i can remember who as sports sports therapy is but as sports therapy says i was one of your sports massage students back in 2013 at the university of bedfordshire uh, my first introduction to sports massage still using all the skills there you go do you know right. who um as sports therapy is AS. i don't know AS. Go. we're going to find out soon i'm sure they put their name in the chat don't forget any names so i wouldn't know the name there we go. Oh, don't forget when the name comes up, even if you don't know them, you're going to have to fake it because otherwise it just shattered them. Okay, so just prepare for that. Um, yeah, that's really that's really great to know. AS, give us your whole name, AS. That'd be uh, good for Steve to know. So it's interesting. We, we, we talked about a little bit about this. Oh, here we go. Alexandra. Da, 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 let's just bring it up on the screen. Those of you listening to the podcast, this is why it's good to join live because it's impulsive and you can put things up there. So Alexandra Sardinia. Oh, yes. Alexandra, there we go. Okay. I remember, I'm, I'm not always great with names, but I'm great with faces. And then uh, I do remember I do remember most people. It was a good time. I enjoyed it there. And I had a good good group of students for the, the years I was there teaching massage. So I keep I try and keep an eye if they're on LinkedIn or any other kind of site. I, I sort of uh, I do see names pop up quite often. People I remember. It's interesting. We were talking, we were talking um, just before we went live about kind of the changes in what sports massage now is. I think it was Gary. Actually, Gary is in the house. So Gary can can um, correct me if I'm wrong. But it was around two sixteen, I think, or something, when this definition was made. This distinction between what massage is with level three, and then when you moved up to level four, and the idea that level three you could only work with definitely not injured tissue they call it they still call it dysfunctional tissue and then if you're level four then you can move up to injuries and things and then level five you could specialize in more stuff but everything you taught beforehand was kind of old school which is nice in a way because although we're talking about sports massage then back then you were teaching about you were allowed to work with people with injuries and the syllabi were much larger and you covered much more area these days. And it's worth making this distinction because it's something that comes up quite a lot on the show where people are doing a, a modern 
massage diploma or something um level three and then they get tempted into working with injury but the syllabus is much different than it used to be much different and you've got to stick with your scope otherwise your insurance doesn't count and you can get yourself into terrible hot water um so i just thought i'd mention that because it is a theme that come up gary will write something in the comments now just in case i've laid it out incorrectly but let's move on to your books steve if that's all right because i'm very excited um to hear about them 2021 was the first one let's just bring it up as a screenshot here um so people listening in the or watching youtube can see it's a sports and performance massage 2021 um something you always wanted to do or yeah tell me how did how did that come about it came about i published the research papers one in 2016 and one in 2018 and i'd started writing another one which must have been about 2019 on massage um, a systematic review on pre-competition massage which was following on from my other two papers um and i'd written quite a bit and then i think i'd i'd written some something about foam rolling for something else i can't remember um uh foam rolling um for uh, something else and then i was at a conference and i got talking to somebody there who was um a publisher and i just said oh you know i know a couple of these people whose books you have here and we just got talking and i said oh you know i've been writing a bit of stuff that i'm just going to publish and um and he asked me what i would written and i told him and he said would you consider turning it into a book um, so again, it happened by accident. And then, so I, I did the book and then I think I'd done about some like 50, 60,000 words. And I said, he, oh, I had all of the, he paid for all the uh, photos. So it was all kind of ready to go. And then he, he emailed me one day and said, look, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm not going to publish your book anymore. And so I was like, you know, I've got sort of 60,000 words here, you know, I've got a book. And um, so I just sat on it and did nothing with it for about six months and just um, tried to forget about it. And then I thought I should do something with this book. So I contacted a few publishers. Again, a couple said no. And then I got a yes. And they said, we like it, but would you add on a bit more? So I added on probably another 15,000 words, 20,000 words maybe. And then I got it published. But my main aim was to bring the research side across, especially for vocational students, because uh, I always felt coming from a vocational background myself um, for my massage, the research side was something I felt I missed out on. And as I mentioned, doing the masters, it really kind of, you know, I really enjoyed that side. So I wanted to write a book for for students and for therapists who either didn't get the research or liked the research side of massage. And that's kind of what the whole book is about, really. It's about the evidence behind all the different aspects behind massage plus associated modalities. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. And it's nice to see because it's 2021. You've mentioned this already with the, the extension of the scope of athletes at Wimbledon, that there's um, chapters in there talking about athletes with special requirements and pregnant athletes and those with disabilities. So it's great to hear that they're getting a mention as well, because yeah, more and more, thankfully they are athletes that we should be considering, um, even though we have to treat them maybe in slightly different ways. Yeah. I mean, there's not a great deal. When you do massage courses, there's not a lot of information about pregnant athletes. 
products. There's a lot of misconceptions about pregnant uh, massage um, and disabled as well. I mean, we have a lot of wheelchair athletes we look after at Wimbledon who have various levels of you know disability of, of what they can and can't do and and i i didn't really know i'd never been taught that and i was kind of thrown in at the deep end so i you know again whenever that happens and i just want to quickly learn about it as much as i can so the research in that aspect you know was useful for me as well excellent yeah it's um it's it's a theme that yeah, people are scared about it because they're they're not taught enough about it, and so you end up worrying that you're going to break someone if they're in a wheelchair. And really, I guess in some situations, with regards to some things, you can treat them the same as anybody else. You know, they just want a massage. So it's it's a shame. I, I hope that um, on some courses and private courses, they're introducing that more and more, so that we're confident to work with these people. Um, pregnant athletes. I'm not sure how many pregnant athletes are actually at Wimbledon. I know I've had pregnant women passing me a couple of times in marathons but yeah at what stage do they still play at Wimbledon or well, Serena Williams did win oh of course um a grand slam being I think she was about eight or ten weeks pregnant eight to ten weeks yeah but you can see up and down the country there are you know a lot of females who are training still quite hard mm-hmm. being you know while they're pregnant and if they're training then there's no reason why they wouldn't want a massage definitely so yeah. You know, it's um, it's another area where people have got to feel confident in what they're what they're doing. Definitely, definitely. We've got a question here um, from Get Fit, Stay Fit Norfolk. Nice name. Um, so, Steve, really enjoying listening to all you've achieved. I have a few tennis players who I look after. Recently, a player presented with lumbar multifidus pathology following playing in Eastbourne. My question is: Do you see patients with such? Uh, this isn't coming up. Do you see patients with such pathologies as spinal rotator, multifidus trauma from playing tennis that often? Best, Steve, get fit, stay fit, Norfolk. Yeah. So, is that pathology you see much? Yeah. I mean, at Queen's Club, I work with um, tennis players throughout the ages and abilities and levels. And then, obviously, at the Grand Slam events, then you're the biggest difference is a transition from clay to grass. So, that brings about its own problems. So, for example, on grass, you have to bend a lot lower. So you're leaning forwards, um, you're staying lower. So you get a lot of quad, glute, lower back, um, extra strain than you wouldn't normally occur on other services. So, again, that can bring about those kind of issues. Tennis players, when they serve, when they rotate, they close one side down as one side opens. They're leaning forwards a lot. Um, and if you look at, there are some players, um, Nishikori, who's a Japanese player, he springs to mind straight away, that when he's waiting to return to serve, he's in a perfect position leaning forwards. So he's, you know, bending his knee slightly as if he's preparing to do kind of like a, a barbell row or a deadlift or something. He's, he's got a great straight back there, where a lot of players, their spine is really curved and then their neck extends so depending on how much they're playing their back is in a very flexed position so i see on an amateur level a lot of sort of tight thoracic spine and then obviously all of those lumbar vertebrae thoracic vertebrae are very stiff um, and all the muscles around the whole spinal column are very stiff as well Mm -hmm. the the ql you get um, a lot more from 
it tends to be a lot more on one side compared to the other. So when it's closed down as you serve, so that would be dependent on normally how, how much someone's doing. But yeah, the, 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 the back gets incredibly stiff from playing tennis. So I guess this is where potentially there's a dialogue you need to have or could potentially have with the coach because you're finding these things and, and you're seeing them. So this is where maybe the coach needs to be informed. Is that sometimes a delicate conversation or do you find you're able to create that multidisciplinary care which can help the patient? Or is it a little bit like the coach saying, well, we don't need your help. You're just a massage therapist. No, I mean, obviously that happens. That's going to happen some, on some occasions. Um, on an amateur level, I've got quite a good relationship at Queen's Cl Club with many of the coaches. Um, I actually treat some of them. They send people to me. So we, we do have a lot more of an open conversation like that. And if with any injury, if I have one of their lessons um, for every, any injury, I'll say just, you know, make sure they only play for, um, you know, a backhand or a forehand. Don't let them serve for a couple of weeks or something. You know, I'll, I'll say some things that I perhaps want or don't want them to do um, on a professional level. It's a bit harder in that way, um, but the players are so. The, the players only care about today and their next match. They don't look any further than that. And I, I've seen players in quite, a, you know, quite badly injured, go out and practice. And you're like, if you want to play tomorrow, don't pick up a racket, don't hit a ball. But they're so determined to practice as if they're going to forget how to hit a ball over a net. So there's no talking them out of that. That's a psychological thing. And, and uh, if they just get through that next match, that's all they care about. They're not looking at two matches time next week, next tournament. They, they, they want the next match. Mm -hmm. So you're not really going to be able to address many issues in that short space of time. I think that's better achieved in more of an amateur level. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I'm listening to you and, and remembering, actually, I have worked with quite a few tennis players. I just managed, I just forgot about all of them. But one common theme often was like you were just saying, it's the same as runners, really. They just, you know, they need to back off a little bit, reduce, maybe not stop entirely, because that would just be life destroying for them. But you know, there needs to be a decrease in either intensity or volume or both for them to recover. And that can often be really tricky because rather like running, I think tennis is quite a social thing as well. Yeah. You know, it's going to the club, it's seeing your colleagues, it's being in a, in a league, a tournament, like a local club thing. Um, have you got any strategies on how to actually help clients realize they need to back off a little bit in order to you know recover properly? Yeah. I mean, you could never like with the runners, you could never tell them to stop running. You can't mm. tell them playing tennis so you've got to kind of give them alternatives so sometimes that might be in the form of exercises they need to do or stretches sometimes it's the amount they play trying to make them play shorter matches or have a day in between when they play it's just a bit of education you know it's like most things whether whatever sport you play people are not aware that they can't play every day especially beyond a certain age uh, and the big thing I noticed was after COVID, as soon as Queen's Club opened up, everybody came back. They hadn't played for, for months and they wanted to play every day because they'd missed it. And of course, they did that for a few weeks. And I got very busy because mm -hmm. you know, their bodies just weren't used to that volume of training. So it's kind of 
you're educating as much as you're treating. With running, one of the things I was able to do or I'm able to do is you can substitute the kind of workout, like if somebody's missing their interval runs, if they don't mind swimming, you can say, you know, you haven't just got to do lens. You can do your intervals. You can do your kind of fart like or whatever in the pool. And that kind of makes it a little bit more like the running session they're missing. You can do that in various ways. How, if somebody, can somebody move from tennis to something else, which is similar and feel like they are getting a bit of a tennis workout? Or is that just harder with tennis? Cause it's such a, you know, how do you substitute that? Yeah, you, you, what you're doing more is, I mean, we have a gym at Queen's Club, so I'm getting people to do more mobility work. I always say to people, think of it as an opportunity. Like if you can't play, it's an opportunity to perhaps strengthen your core, strengthen your balance, mm-hmm. work nation drills. You know, I always give them other options that they can do. You know, try and convince them that that will add on 10% to their serving speed if we loosen up their thoracic spine. So it kind of gets them away from thinking about they need to play, play, play. It's about when they come back, they'll be better than before they were either injured or had to have a layoff. Excellent. Um, brings us on nicely to second book, 2022. It's being up on the screen for people joining us live. So, yeah, recovery from strenuous exercise. Was this something which you found was going to appear once you finished the 2021 book or how did this book come about? Yeah, I when the first book was going through the publication stage, I had the idea for the second one. Um, I approached the same publisher, um, Taylor and Francis, and I said, look, you know, I've got this idea. Um, I started I'd already started writing. Um, and then they said, oh, can you send send us some stuff what you've done? So I sent that across to them. And they said, well, we'll have to send it across to some reviewers. And the same is for the first book. Um, they sent it off to four reviewers and it came back favourable and they said, yeah, we'd like you to publish the second one. So I just carried on with the writing. And again, it was some of the information I, I'd already written. Some of it I um, had written nothing about before. Uh, some I remembered from like doing my master's degree. And then just started digging back into those kind of subjects again, like the overtraining and overreaching. Um, But there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to know. And I thought if I want to know it, then I think other people will do. And the whole recovery thing now is just, you know, it's really boomed the whole ice bath and hyperbaric oxygen chambers. But people don't really know, even the athletes, they don't really know what works. It's all by trial and error. Mm -hmm. coach recommends or they've seen another player do most people don't really know you know what to do how long to do it for whether they should be doing it but in professional sport it's used by everybody Mm -hmm. i guess we should stress also that although we're talking about tennis both of these books the sports performance massage 2021 and the recovery from strenuous exercise 2022 it's it's suitable for all athletes yeah and all coaches and people involved with different sports yeah, I tried to make the information as generic as possible. And the research papers I found were from everything from rock climbing and judo athletes to, you know, runners and cyclists. It, you know, whenever I found research papers on recovery, I was reading it and or on ice baths and, and, and they use different subjects. So I tried to include as many different sports and modalities as I could. Um, I think some of the things are, I've included in the book i could have perhaps written a whole book about each individual 
subject so i had to kind of draw the line somewhere but um yeah there's a I don't think a trilogy is kind of on my list of things to do, but there was also, uh, you could write a separate book on recovery in female athletes. You could do it on adolescence, on the uh, older athletes. I'd love to have included all of that in the book, but I'm afraid it, no one would be able to carry it. It would have been that thick. You know, there, there's, there's, um, yeah, so I, I did include, you know, as many different sports as I could in there. Excellent um yeah well we'll see it's only 2023 we'll see what comes in 2024 very excited right so and there's a question here from jamie gargit.com that's a handy name jamie gargit.com and um, has said really interesting podcast thanks jamie thanks for joining us live as well um he says steve how do you fit into the structure of physios coaches sports therapists at a club or for an athlete that very much depends on where you're working so um, I just finished the last season with Brentford Football Club. And so there um, you're working with physiotherapist, a sports medicine doctor. Um, and there you're, you're seeing players because they can approach you because they want treatment. You're seeing people that the physiotherapist refer to you. So then it comes as a mix. You'll see some players I got involved with, like the performance analysis um, team so players from their gps data had uh, perhaps had higher loads so therefore would need more recovery so I, I kind of collected my sort of day from different sources um from those who approached me directly the performance analysis conversations to the physiotherapist and um, with the tennis again the majority of people will will seek you they will be the ones who decide that they want treatment from you. Sometimes you think it's kind of a superstition that if they win the first round and they've had a treatment from you, then when they're looking across and see all the therapists free, they'll go straight to you because you, you help them and they won. Um, some it'll be because they've known you from previous years, but some are referred from the, um, the physiotherapists. Um, obviously, they do some massage as well it's kind of it's not the physios don't always just directly pass people straight there will do massage as well so sometimes it's whoever's free will come in so it's interesting definitely seems to be a people know you i mean i think yeah people have got different names and there's certain circumstances obviously where physios qualify to work with people when it comes to athletes then it's interesting to hear the kind of slight blurring that goes on unless there's a specific injury or system that needs attention so but it's yeah it's, it's healthy how do you when someone says what are you do you use massage in the title or do you find that that can inhibit would uh, you just say i'm steve i'm steve bedford i find it really difficult when people say mm. what on that really difficult to answer um i started using the term sports performance there because generally i work with people who want to perform better at their sport mm. So, and whether they be a professional athlete or whether they be an amateur one, at the end of the day, they want to perform better and they want my help. So, and because I do sort of fitness and strength and conditioning as well as rehabilitation and the hands-on, I try not to call myself a strength and conditioning coach or a sports therapist as such or a sports massage therapist or you know, rehabilitation therapist. I just use sports performance therapist. But, 
you know, in effect, I'm, I guess I'm a sports therapist. If you, if you want to kind of push me into my title, mm-hmm. then I call myself. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people do struggle with what to call themselves, but um, yeah, no, it's good. I think I like it. Sports perform. I mean, that's what your master's is in. So, I mean, yeah. it's, and it does manage to cover, but it's interesting that you haven't, you've escalated higher and higher and ended up with masters, but it still sounds like you're very passionate about the hands-on and the massage. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I mean, it's the thing that I started with and it's the thing that I, I guess from a performance level I've had the most success with, with Wimbledon and Arsenal and Brentford. So I guess from a career perspective and the, you know, the book and the research papers, it's something I've always had success with. And I, I kind of still enjoy doing it now as much as I, kind of ever have so yeah I, i'll always do i'll always do hands-on work so but you know it's a bit of massage a bit of mobilizing a bit of stretching you know a bit of rehab it, it all kind of blurs and merges and part of a treatment really very interesting it's great it's good to hear inspiration i'm sure for a lot of the listeners nikki mansfield says social media is full of people attacking the traditional claims that massage can help with sports performance and recovery it's great to hear your books on those subjects are so evidence-based yeah it's really healthy and being 2020 20 2020 and 2021 it's all right no 2021 2022 yeah. yeah um it's good i mean they are relevant things have changed since 10 years ago as i'm sure kind of you've discovered yourself as well so yeah sounds like a good couple of books to get your hands on um and if people are interested in the books then there's uh obviously you could go to amazon but you could also go to the website which i shall put into the show notes um it's steve bedford performance therapy dot my um or like i say if if you want i will put that link in the notes and i think you can get your hands on um the books and more there's i see there's a muscle cramping athletes a little ebook as well yeah um and and uh, various other stuff as well cbd hemp massage oils loads of stuff on there so definitely worth going along to that website um yeah, yeah. if you want it signed then all they got to do is contact you i guess steve isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> i'm gonna mention about the um ebook uh because that again and for anybody else who's interested in in writing the the self-publishing route i found was really good um I, I just again it was born about my frustration of people not knowing what caused muscular cramp mm-hmm. being such poor advice so i just started reading loads of research and then writing it down and so i started getting more and more and more and then i thought i'll just do a self-published book i think it's about I don't know, some other 40 50 pages but it's um it, it's surprisingly easy to do and there's pros and cons of using a publisher. Um, obviously, you have copy editors and proofreaders, um, but there's all, it also comes with quite a lot of problems as well. And when you self-publish, you're kind of like the master of your own destiny. It can kind of look how you want it to look. Um, and so for anybody who has an idea or something, a subject they're passionate about, I definitely recommend it as um yeah, it's a way of getting your kind of idea onto paper. And no form of book, you, you make a lot of money, so you have to do it kind of partly for your own learning or for enjoyment or to have it out there. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a good way to go. 
Very interesting. We haven't had anybody mention that before as well. So that's, yeah, take a look at what um, Steve has produced on the website. There's also some details of some courses as well. Is that something you're working on? Yeah, something to put together at the moment. It's just about for people who want to work with athletes, whether they be recreational or professional, it's just going over some of the skills that people have learned and how they fit into, you know, sports people, you know, like professional and good amateurs. So I, I kind of broke some chapters down from the book and I'm working on the second book to do the same on recovery. Um, just so people get a better understanding of each individual subject, because when you do any massage course, you know, you've got limited time devoted to each subject. So for the first book, it's just about going into a bit more detail, some more options, more variations and about what I found over the last 20 so many years in sport is about what I found that works and what doesn't really work and what people like and they don't like. So I've tried to break them down. So they'll be coming out later this year. And then the recovery, that'll, that'll be out for next year, the courses. Excellent. So, yeah, so people, you can keep an eye on that website. Again, it's Steve Bedford Performance Therapy.myshopify.com. Um, but I will put a link to it in the show notes. And also, people can follow you on Instagram. We've got a Steve Bedford PT. And then on Facebook as well, Steve Bedford Performance Therapist, if people are, are interested and want to follow what you're up to. Um, plans for the rest of the year, Steve? Uh, that's when I'll be back. Queens will start getting busier from September, so I'll be there. Um, I may go back into doing a bit more lecturing again. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know. That's what I like about being self-employed and why I don't like being full-time employed anywhere, because you never know what's around the corner. What mm. opportunity there. I still I still look forward to that now, you know, and that, that's quite nice. You've got to be somebody gave me a good bit of advice a long time ago about being self-employed. They said that when you're self-employed, you spend all of your time trying to fill your diary. And when it's full, you spend all of your time trying to empty it. I like it. Very nice. So, yeah. kind of, even now, now August is a quiet month for me. And, I, and sometimes you think, oh, God, you know, I hope this is going to pick up again in September. But now I've kind of learned to enjoy the quiet time a little bit because at some point it's going to start really building up again. Excellent. Yeah, good advice there. People out there who are self-employed. Yeah, great. Love it. And of course, you've got loads of skills you developed over the years where one could become a little more popular, flavor of the month. Another one could change the next month to come. So, yeah, great to hear. Right. Look, it's 9.02. That flew by that hour. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us in the live lounge. Some great questions. Thank you, Jamie and Nikki and other people who ask questions. Um, if, and, of course, thank you to Steve again for joining us for the hour. If you are interested um, in joining us live, if you're listening to this podcast, which I will upload in the next couple of days, if you're thinking, I want to be there live, I want to ask questions to the guests as well, then we will be back next Tuesday, which is August the 29th, and we're going to move from tennis to women's football which is rather topical at the moment, isn't it? Um, but we're going to be talking with somebody who's actually spent time with uh, the ladies' football team. Uh, Michelle Lyons um, is going to be with us. Um, and that's going to be a fascinating episode for everybody, but especially if you're interested in uh, working with uh, female athletes or female football players. Um, and that will be live, recorded live as always, 8 o'clock next Tuesday on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. But for now, thanks once again, Steve. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, yeah, take care, people, and we'll see you very soon. You're listening to the Sports Therapy.
Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.